you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to finish what we started uh, last week and look at verses 35 through 40 again this week. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. I want to begin by asking you this question this morning. If you were going to describe your state of mind in regards to the return of Christ, what word would you choose? What things might you say about your thinking when you contemplate the second coming of Christ? Would you maybe describe yourself as indifferent? Would you use a word maybe like apathetic if you're real honest with yourself? Maybe you might use a word like emotionalist, unconcerned. Or maybe you might say of yourself, <clears throat> you know, that you hope he doesn't come back too soon because you've got a lot of places to go and people to see and things to do. If you're in your teens or 20s, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, I've got my whole life ahead of me. I, I want to uh, get married. I want to have children. I want to have a career. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're doubtful that he will come back in your lifetime because, you know, it's already been a couple thousand years and maybe it's going to be another couple thousand years. Who knows? But how many of us would describe ourselves in regards to the return of Jesus Christ utilizing one of the following words? Eager, watchful, yearning, expectant, longing, hopeful, or even simply just ready. These are things that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Have we become dull, sluggish, or even disinterested as to whether Jesus Christ comes back or not? Have we neglected our duties and been apathetic to whether or not he appears? Have we let the world intoxicate us and cause us to drift into a stupor and never be concerned whether or not he's coming back? Or are we living our lives in such a way that we are ready for the second coming of Christ? Do we regularly and frequently place upon our conscience that at any moment Jesus Christ may return? Does our character, our thoughts, our actions reflect that down deep in the deepest parts of our heart that there's an eager expectation that our precious Lord may arrive at any moment? Because that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us in this text that we have here before us. And that we should be living in such a way that we are in a state of anticipation and ready for his return at any moment. There should be this watchfulness and this expectant readiness for our master's return. In fact, if we were going to look at the few verses just before us, or just before this text here, Jesus taught us that our lives should be characterized as one that's not really living for the world and all of its goods and all of its treasures, but that we should be a people who are continually storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven and divesting of ourselves here on earth. So it's like the text that Jason had read during the offering. We should be living like this. This is a temporary residence. Our earth is not our home. This is not our permanent abode. And then there should be this continual disconnection or disattachment of our hearts from the entanglements of this world or a casting off of those things that hinder us in our devotion to the Lord. And then in turn, we should be binding our hearts to Jesus Christ. If we're going to be rich, we need to be rich in God. 
Paul completely understood this concept when he wrote in Philippians 1.21, he said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. All that he lived for, all that he pursued, anything of value for Paul, the very center of his life was found in the ambitious pursuit of Jesus Christ. Think about the very hour of your death. Anything that you have of earthly comfort is going to vanish in an instant. All the riches and all the pleasures of this earth that you have ever enjoyed is never going to give you one iota of peace or joy at that moment. Anything and everything you've ever accumulated will never alleviate you of your grief or your distress. But how sweet would your death be if you placed all of your confidence in your strong Savior? What peace would you have knowing that Christ has given you the robe of righteousness and the garment of salvation? How happy would you be knowing that you had spent all of your life for God? And that your zeal and that your passion wasn't for this life, but it was invested in the life to come. Because that's what Christ is wanting for us. That's what He's wanting for you and I. He's wanting us to place our hearts in heaven, where He is, and will someday come back for us and take us there to be with Him for all of eternity, if we're only found faithful. So let's read our text together and finish up what Jesus would have to say to us, beginning in verse 35 of Luke chapter 12. I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to do so. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35, God's holy and inerrant word says this, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too... Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. I just pray that our hearts might be disentangled from the cares of this world and set apart for you. Let Christ have preeminence in our life. Let him reign supreme in every aspect of our lives. Lord, help us to be focused in listening to your word, understanding it, and help us by the power of your spirit to take these truths and live them from here on out. Lord, it's in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we began to look at these verses last week, we noted that in verse 35 there was this First, a command for us to be dressed in readiness and to keep our lamps lit. Or the more literal translation there uh, was that we were to gird up our loins, or let your waist be girded might be another way to phrase it. And the imagery that was given there was of the people of the first century who wore long robes that might get in their way if they had to start moving in a hurry. 
And so what they were to do was to grab and take up the hem, lift it up and tuck it into their waistband of their, or their belt so that their legs would have the freedom and the mobility to move about if they needed to. And in the context of our Christian lives, what this means is that we are called to be prepared for action. It's a call of preparation here for us. In other words, it's a charge for you and I to be dressed for battle and be in a state of readiness. We are to remove those things that would restrict us or might trip us up. We're to uh, tie up anything that might cause us to stumble. This isn't a call for you and I to be spiritual couch potatoes. We shouldn't be reclining or slouching here. There should be no coasting in your Christian life. But this is a charge for you and I to be ready to run. This is a call for us to be prepared to run the race in such a way that we might win the prize. And likewise, in verse 35, he said, keep your lamps lit. In other words, this is a call to be ready at all times for the master's service. Day or night, as Christians, we should be watchful and waiting for whatever the Lord would have us do. Very practically, that means that we are diligently guarding our hearts and carefully watching over its affections. It means we are making a daily work of mortifying sin in our lives. It means that we are continually taking inventory to see if there's any root of bitterness that has sprung up in us. And if so, we hack it off. In other words, there is such a passionate pursuit of personal holiness in your life that when others see you, they are seeing a reflection of the glory of God from heaven. Your zeal for God is like fuel on a fire, and it is continually giving off its brilliant light day or night. And then we we looked at the first of two parables to sort of illustrate what we should be like. And the first one was in verse 36 when he said, Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Now, if you recall, the Jewish wedding celebration uh, lasted for days or even a week, and uh, the celebrating and the dancing and the partying, and there was never a set time as to when something like this was, was going to end. So it was really anyone's guess as to when the master of a house could return after going to a wedding. But yet these ready servants were watchful. They were prepared. They were ready to spring into action at a moment's notice. Jesus used a similar parable in Mark 13, 33 through 37, when he said, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the the alert. And so what Jesus is saying in both cases is that we should really be gazing heavenward for the expectant return of our Lord. And as a result of that gaze, as a result of that focus, we should never be slack in our diligent pursuit of Him. We shouldn't be living a life of uh, passivity, but we should be living a life of activity that is singularly focused on the task of being obedient and ready for our Master. 
We're not to be off-duty servants while Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for us. We're not to be unarmed soldiers who have set aside our weapons while the commander-in-chief is away. You just can't remain neutral and just sit still. In other words, now, today, is the time not for you to be lazy and slack in your Christian walk. But now is the time for you to apply diligence and steadfastness in your pursuit of Him. And sadly, ladies and gentlemen, this is a less frequently emphasized thing than you may think in the church today. So many churches are just comfortable with winning souls for the kingdom, so to speak, even Southern Baptist churches. So many churches just want to boast about their attendance roles and their membership and their baptism numbers. One pastor locally, he told me, we've got 800 members, but only about 200 come on a Sunday. Another church claimed to have 300 professions of faith while at the, uh, being set up at the Union County Fair, and yet they never saw any of those people again. Another Southern Baptist church claims 16,000 members, but only 6,000 are active. 10,000 inactive church members. I don't know what that looks like. They want to just win them to the kingdom at whatever cost. Have them go through a confirmation class, give them a life verse, tell them that they're in the kingdom of God because they rattled off yes to a couple of questions or they memorized a couple of salvific topics and concepts. Just get them in, get them wet, and then get on to the next. That's what most churches want to do. But how many people are going to hell because they have not been told that anything else is required of them? How many people are perishing because they've been lied to about what is actually required of them as a follower of Jesus Christ? How many people have been told that the Christian life is a fight of faith? That it's a pursuit of a prize? That it's a death to self? That it's a cross to bear and to take up? It's a devil to resist? It's a Lord to obey? It's an armor to put on? It's a race to run? It is sin to mortify. It's a mind to renew. How many people have been told that they will have a weak heart, a tempting world, and a busy devil with which they need to contend with? How many people have been told that they will enter into the fight of their lives? How many people will actually have counted the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? How many people are living more like Judas and Demas and even Lot's wife instead of living like Stephen, Peter, or Paul? Beloved of God, how many souls are being deceived because they continually look back at that hand that they raised at that church service, or that aisle that they walked, or that card that they signed at some revival, and they aren't looking back at the finished work of Jesus Christ as the means of their justification. They're looking at something else. They're looking at what they did, but not what Christ has done. And they say, I'm good to go. I did that. Jesus, oh yeah, I prayed that prayer. I got walked down that Roman road. I, I agreed with that guy who did that little Evangel Cube thing. And yet they know nothing of His grace. They know nothing of the times of His refreshing. They know nothing of His peace. They know nothing of casting all of their anxieties and their cares upon Him. They know nothing of His blood, His righteousness, and His intercession for us before the Father. They claim to have union with Him, but they have absolutely no communion. But since you're here today, and you're in this place... 
And my charge has been to preach the whole counsel of God and the fact that I am going to someday face a stricter judgment. I have to ask you, are you claiming to know Jesus Christ? Are you engaged in the battle? Are you alert and awake for your master? Are you running a race in such a way that you are going to win? Are you resisting the devil so that he will flee from you? Are you in this or not? Believe me, I know there's times and there's seasons when our hearts grow cold. I'll tell you this for fact. I know that there's weariness and I know it just seems unrelenting sometimes. I know that there are times in which our eyes are mesmerized by things they shouldn't be. I know that there are frequent times in which we need to be encouraged. But if you know nothing of the wrestling of the inner man or woman, then you should have cause for concern. If you aren't in a conscious conflict with the, in the two natures within yourself, as Paul did in Romans 7, you should be worried. You should awake and turn to Christ before it's too late. You should cry out to Christ while there is still time because you may not even make it out of this parking lot today. Because there is no guarantee to the length of your life. There is no guarantee to the number of your breaths or the number of your days. You need to seek Christ so that you may live. But if you do know of this inner struggle, if you do know of this inner conflict, then let us thank God that it is a good sign that the work of sanctification has begun in your life. Gold does not get refined without fire. So you should take heart that Jesus Christ is on your side. What will separate you from the love of Christ Jesus? What promise has God ever broken? What sin can his blood not wash away? What banner will ever fly higher than that of Jesus Christ? Whose arm is stronger than that of our God's? What burden can he not bear of yours? If he is for you, who can be against you? And so this text that we have here today is a call for you and I to wake up and be on the alert. This text is a call for you and I to awaken out of our slumber and our lethargy and to be one like a servant who is ready to answer the door for the master of the house. Or to get to the point, this text is really about your personal, passionate pursuit of holiness. This text is really about your own personal faithfulness and obedience to Jesus Christ. Do you have your robe pulled up and tucked into your waistband and your lamp full of oil and you are ready to see Christ and not be ashamed at His coming? Is there anything that you are engaging in in which you would not be ashamed to see Jesus Christ at a moment's notice? Are you utilizing the means of grace that He is giving to you so that you can conquer sin and temptation, namely prayer and His precious Word. We've been given much. We've been given everything we need. But then look at verse 37 with me, where we see this incredible reward that the master of the house gives to those whom he comes and he finds faithful. It says in verse 37, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait 
on them. Now we've seen this word blessed many times before, and most of us are here are very familiar with the Beatitudes from the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, and so on, and so on it goes. But the word blessed simply means to be happy. And in the context of verse 37, what Jesus is saying is that our happiness does not come apart from obedience to God. Our happiness, when Christ returns, does not come from spiritual lethargy or slack. Our happiness comes that when we are faithfully pursuing Christ with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and Christ returns and He finds us doing so. There will be no true joy apart from obedience to God because He alone is enough. And apart from Him, nothing will ever be enough for your happiness. But then He says, truly, Truly I say to you, or literally, amen is the word for truly. I say to you, or I solemnly declare to you. Now what this means is, is that what I'm about to say is surely going to come to pass. What I'm about to tell you is a truthful statement, and you can take it to the bank because it is going to be so. And so most often we see Jesus use this word. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, or if some of you are familiar with, verily, verily, I say unto thee. That word is amen, amen. Amen, amen. It's where we get the expression at the end of our prayer. We say, amen, I agree, that's truth. But the word is an expression of absolute confidence. But then, look what he says to us, that you can bank on as a precious promise. Now, sometimes uh, one of my pastors told me you could put a, a P and a P, capital P, would say precious promise, and write this down beside this. But he said, look at this, truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Now, when we first read this, this seems kind of like maybe it's an odd statement, considering what it's, sta- what it's saying here. This seems like it can't be so because we know that in the parable, we are the slaves and Jesus is the master. And we are, and we are to be found faithful and obedient to him. But then he is going to gird himself to serve and have us recline at the table and then come and wait upon us. How can this be so? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like we, be, we should be served by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we should be waited on by the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the firstborn of all creation. The one from whom all things were created through him and all things came into being. The one who holds all things up by the word of his power. The one who has numbered the sand of the shore and named all of the stars in the sky. How can this possibly be that we should be served by him? That we should come into his presence and then be served by him? It is so. The text does not lie. This statement is as true as it can be. Beloved of God... You need to write this precious promise down on the tablet of your heart. 
This is a most assured thing that you need to remind yourself of daily. This is something that you need to dwell upon in your heart and your soul, that the majestic, infinite God of the universe, the Lord of all and is above all, who rules and reigns with infinite wisdom and power, who is sovereign over all creation and dwells in inapproachable light, who knows the depths of the ocean and can place all of the water in his hand, in the palm of his hand, who can measure the stars with the span of his fingers, who has formed you, your innermost parts, while you were yet still in the womb. He, that one, he is going to reverse the roles when he takes you into glory and serve you and give you rest and nourish your soul for all of eternity. This should blow you away. This should cause your heart to sing. This should cause you to marvel at such a sacrificial Savior. But is this not what He has done for us already? Has He not come into the world once for sins, and He's left the precious bosom of the Father where He enjoyed the happiest of states, and He emptied Himself, and He took on the form of a bondservant in perfect obedience, and He went to to the cross to serve you and I already? Did he not leave the highest places of enjoyment, namely his heavenly abode? And he comes down to earth and he takes on human flesh so that he could serve you and I by shedding his blood on the cross to redeem you and I? Beloved of God, if Christ, if he has set himself apart from you or for you, how much more reasonable is for you to set yourself apart for him? If he was obedient to the Father and he went to the cross with the joy that was set before him and he endured those cruel moments on the cross, how much is it to ask of you to be faithful and obedient to him? And not only that, but to those who endure, to those who are found faithful upon his return, to those who are pursuing him and they're walking in holiness, he in turn is going to serve you. This is breathtaking. This should be a great motivation for you as a believer to be obedient to Him. But then He tells us there's an unexpectancy of His return. And He uses us another parable to illustrate that in verse 39. But starting in verse 38, He says, whether He comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so Blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the point is this, is that no one knows when Jesus is coming. You should never listen to anyone ever (laughs) who tells you that they know when Jesus is coming based on this series of events or that event or what this number found in the Bible means or whatever it is. The book, Eight Reasons That Jesus Is Coming Back in 1988, that book's a good fire starter for your winter kindling to get it going, all right? It didn't happen, (laughs) okay? There are all kinds of cults out there that have popped up over the years that are claiming to know the return of Jesus Christ. The coming is guaranteed and is revealed to us, and it is most assured. 
but the day and the time has not been revealed to us, and it too is real and is assured. And I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, from my personal experience and my side job, that everyone will tell you who has ever lost a loved one that has come suddenly and unexpectedly, this is absolutely true. Everyone always says it's unexpected. We didn't know that was going to happen. It doesn't matter if it's a little baby in a crib. It doesn't matter if it's an eight- or nine-year-old boy in a house fire. It doesn't matter whether it's their 80- or 90-year-old grandmother. It's always unexpected. Always. We don't know when we are going to meet Jesus in the air or if He comes again, when He comes again or whether we die. We don't know. But the point of all this is, is that we should always be ready. We should always be watchful. We should always be prayerful. Is it too much for, to ask of us to be ready for His coming? Is it too great a thing for us to be found ready for the One who has bought us with His own precious blood? The true Christian should not only believe Christ, but love Christ. And the true Christian should also long and look for His glorious appearing. We should all be ready to say in our hearts, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I readily admit to you that there are times when I don't look for you to come. There are times when My heart doesn't seem ready. Lord, and I'm afraid that that's probably true of some of the rest of us here today. And so, God, I would just ask that you help us to be in a state of readiness. Help us to be found faithful. Help us to run this race with endurance because we need it. Increase our faith, Lord. Help us to be strong in the power of His might. Help us to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit for strength and perseverance and continuance. God, help us as a church to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen.